Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, as always. Let's pray before we look at God's Word. Lord, we thank you for this morning. What a blessing it is that we can gather as the household of God. We pray, Lord, you would help us to have hearts that love you, love your word, that we would praise you because, yes, Lord, you have washed our sins away. Lord, I pray as we continue, Lord, to walk through your word as we look at the Old Testament, Lord, help us to have hearts and eyes to see, that we may walk worthy of you and see you, Lord, as holy, supreme, majestic as you are. We love you, we praise you, to you be the glory in your son's name we pray, amen. Once again this morning, we are looking at Genesis chapter 3. We've been in this book for a few weeks now, walking it through uh, verse by verse. The first week we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, really doing a broad overview of those two chapters uh, to answer the creation question. Uh, That is, where do we come from? Uh, Why are we here And as we saw, God is the living God, the eternal one who exists, who made us for his glory, who made us in his image to rule, to subdue, to fill the earth. Then what God appointed man to have dominion over, it was good. It was without struggle, difficulty, or pain. It was very good. Scripture is clear that God made us, not we ourselves. And that all creation comes from him. And that creation that he made, it was good. But we recognize things aren't good now. They're not like they were in Genesis 1 and 2. That's clear. So what changed? What happened? What caused this? Well, as we've looked at the last two weeks in Genesis 3... We saw how sin entered the world. Because the man and the woman whom God created, they disobeyed him. They discarded his command and they followed their own path. They ate from the tree that God had commanded them not to eat from, which was an act of rebellion, an act of defiance, which then in turn resulted in really shame and blame. The shame grew out of their sin, guilt as well. Then when God confronted the couple, as we saw last week, he addressed them by asking questions. Questions for the purpose of confession. Questions to lead to repentance. Questions that really displayed God's love, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his compassion. That God is the great seeker. Sadly, though, the man and the woman display a worldly sorrow rather than a godly one by shifting the blame, not taking ownership for their sinful act, but rather they point the finger elsewhere. The man to the woman, the woman to the serpent, the man to God. Sin really is disastrous. It is very pervasive. It always multiplies too when it goes unconfessed. It always produces more, as we saw with the case with Adam and Eve. This is where we last left off last week in verse 13, after we see how God graciously pursued the couple 
and confronted them on their sin. This morning, we will further see how sin has consequences, that there are inevitable consequences for sin, that there is a price to pay for it, for the holiness of God demands it. The righteousness of God requires it. This section we'll be looking at at will all be about the curse and the judgment. It tells us really how the world became lost, how depravity, pain, struggle, and death would become the lot to humanity. And not just some of humanity, not just really a fraction of humanity, but all of humanity. But what's rather amazing here is that this section is not exclusively doom and gloom because it's not without hope, but rather it's, it's hopeful because strangely enough, there is grace inside of it showing what is lost could be found, what is broken could be made whole, what is distorted could be restored. This will all be in the section that we'll be looking out this morning as we walk it through. And in fact, what we will see this morning will really be the whole process of the rest of Scripture, of what Scripture lays out for us all the way to the closing of the book in Revelation. This morning, we're looking at Genesis 3, 14 through 19. 14 through 19, again, which is all about the curse and the judgment. So let's read, picking up in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then he said to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This section really is a threefold judgment given by God. The first is given to the serpent in verses 14 through 15. Uh, Then the next is to the woman in verse 16, and then to the man, the final one, verses 17 through 19. Let's Let's look first at the serpent, verses 14 and 15. This is actually where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning as we look at the serpent. As we conclude the message from last week, we we made the observation that God did not ask any questions to the serpent like he did Adam and Eve. 
And the reason we walk through why he didn't do that is because there is no salvation. There is no redemption for Satan, but only condemnation, only judgment. Questions were not needed because they served no purpose, because there is no hope for Satan. There's actually no questions in this section at all, because now's not the time for questions. Because now's the time for everyone to listen, because God is giving judgment. With regards to this judgment, as we said, the first to be addressed was the serpent. He is stated as the cause for the coming judgment. God says to him, you have done this. You have done this. And because you have done this, you are cursed. It's really a strong word, cursed. It's the first time of, we read, actually, of a divine curse in Scripture. It's a term that appears roughly 55 times in the Old Testament, mainly in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. We see it primarily in Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 28, where Deuteronomy 27 really highlights both chapters, actually 27, 28, highlight curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience. So curses really are the opposite of what it means to be blessed. It's also used twice here in this section, verse 14 we see it, also in verse 17 where it says, cursed is the ground because of you. So it's actually used twice here, specifically pertaining to the serpent and to the ground. So those direct words in terms of curse are not directly applied to the man or to the woman. The woman is not stated to be cursed. The man is not stated to be cursed. But yes, they, they will feel the full effects of the fall, as we'll see, but it doesn't say they are specifically cursed as the ground and as the serpent are. The word carries the meaning of an imprecation. Well, really, a, a spoken or written words were to invoke pain or misery against a person or a thing, which is really typical of prophetic language. It's really a way of introducing a message of judgment, a message of doom. And this message of doom is first given to the serpent. Now, this curse on the serpent has two objects as it's focused. The first object is the animal itself. It's the snake. It's the reptile. It says this animal was to be cursed more than all cattle and every beast of the field. Now the reason for this is not because of direct responsibility on the animal's part, but rather as a reminder. A reminder that this animal was used as the instrument of man's fall that the body of this animal was used to contribute to man's fall. This curse upon this reptile also now would be viewed as a sign of disgrace, repulsiveness, disgust. Really, the picture of a snake invokes a lot of those thoughts and feelings. For example, if you would ask most people, what animal they were most scared of, what they hated the most, a lot of you would say a snake. That'd probably be right there at the top of the list. Especially if you were to ask my brother. He's petrified of snakes. 
and this is being recorded, so he'll probably hear this, but that's fine. He's even afraid of rubber snakes, especially waking up to them when he was sleeping and seeing them right next to him. Yes, I did explore that. But for many people, they, they share that same dread when it comes to snakes. For many people, the image of a snake really invokes filth and fear, really that image of disgust. And again, for us as Christians, it's a reminder of something. It's a reminder of our fall and how this animal, this object was used, that it was the physical agent behind the temptation. Now, notice how it's stated that the serpent is cursed more than all the other animals, cursed more than all the, meaning above them, which really is an indication that all the other animals were also brought under the judgment at this time. Now, again, they weren't specifically cursed like the snake was, but they still would feel the full effects of the fall. That would be applied to them. They would suffer from the, the, from the fall. All the animals will. And because of this now, animals will become difficult, challenging, hard to tame, annoying pest. Even some will become threats to us and even then die. Sin affected the entire animal kingdom as well. This includes your beloved dog that you love, that you adore. This includes the Sparks Dog Willow, who's an adorable dog. They're shaking their head with disgust at me now. This includes all the animals, though, including cats especially. In fact, cats really are a result of the fall. First Fleshalonians tells us this. You really have the serpent, snakes, and the cats, I think, are right there. But sin didn't affect the entire animal kingdom. Hence why we have that little beetle flying around us every week. I haven't seen him yet today. He's already here. He's lurking. He's waiting. He's looking for his next target to come. But, but really at, at the center, though, at the center of, of this, really, this, this fall of how it infected the entire animal kingdom, it's the serpent. It is the serpent. Because he was cursed. Now, this curse upon the snake is stated in physical terms, such as crawling on its belly and eating dust. These punishments really point to the snake's life. Now, one is humiliation and subjugation. The fact now that it's to crawl on its belly shows that this would be a new form of travel, that it previously maybe had some form of an upright posture, maybe four legs of some form, but now it's changed. Now it's going to be altered. For the snake will crawl now. And crawling on the stomach was a sign of subjugation. For the snake had sought, to, had sought to really exalt itself above the man, but now it was as a form of its judgment would travel upon its belly, which then means really it would be unclean because in Leviticus 11.42, crawling animals were designated as ritually unclean. So snakes were unclean animals. It also says they will eat dust. That's going to be a part of their diet, which is really another sign of filth, corruption, 
Because if you look at verse 19, know what it says with regards to Adam? Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Meaning the remains of human life is what the snake will eat. Again, a sign of filth. A sign of disgust that would come upon the animal. It also says the scripture eating dust, really, I would say this, it's, it's a picture of abject humiliation. Psalm 72 verse 9 tells us that. It says, and the nomads of the desert will bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Lastly, it says, pertaining to the duration, it says all the days of your life. Meaning this is permanent. It's not going to change. It's not going to be removed. In fact, we see snakes still crawling when we get to the millennial kingdom in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65. The snake will remain as an image and really an illustration of the curse, of the fall, of the effects of sin. But there's one more picture. One more. And that picture is one of a defeated enemy, one that's been conquered, but conquered by who? In fact, some of you may even say, well, how is it even conquered? How is it defeated? Because didn't the serpent, who, remember, is Satan really in disguise, didn't he win? Wasn't he successful in deceiving the woman, getting her to eat? Then the man follows his wife? Didn't he achieve his goal? Gain the allegiance of the man and the woman? And triumph over God? Didn't he win? Well, from Satan and the demon's perspective, it may have looked that way. It may have looked that the, the way that they truly were victorious. But verse 15 answers that question loud and clear. How Satan, in reality, he lost. He did not win. As I stated earlier, the cursed member has two objects as its focus. First, you have the snake. Okay? That's the animal itself, the reptile. Second, you have Satan. Satan now is directly addressed, directly cursed, by God. God now in verse 15 is going to address the evil spirit behind the snake. Look what it says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now remember, there's the possibility that Satan was celebrating the moment Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit because they had fallen. They gave in. The demons may have been cheering, roaring. Satan could have thought, now I have gained momentum to overthrow God. I will finally usurp God. I will be God. But Satan couldn't be more wrong, could he? Because our God is sovereign. Our God is always in control, always fulfilling his purposes, always reigning on the throne. God makes that clear 
by saying, I will. I will. Remember how Satan, in Isaiah 14, five times said, I will. I will do this. In verse 12, he says, How the mighty have fallen, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan is saying, I will, showing his pride, his desire to be God, his desire to usurp God. But those I will statements, they were unsuccessful. They didn't happen. They really were, I tried and I failed. But you need to understand, where Satan tries and where Satan fails, God accomplishes. God succeeds. God is actually the one who wills, not Satan. God makes that clear. In fact, well, he says it twice again in verse 16, I will. God is the God who wills, not Satan. And the fact that he says this really is a declaration over his, his authority over Satan once again. And what he wills to do in verse 15 is to put enmity. That's a term that refers to hostility, hatred. It's pointing to a clash, a clash that's going to happen and take place between two sides, you and the woman, your seed and her seed. So what does that mean? Who are these referring to? So we need to walk this through. Well, seed naturally has a biological meaning to it, but that doesn't seem to be the case here in a physical sense, but rather a spiritual sense. This seems to be pointing to a spiritual seed. There's more of a spiritual meaning and understanding here. Because this is referring to the seed of Satan, the seed of the woman. So this can't be strictly physical. Satan being a spirit doesn't have an actual physical seed. And the woman is unable biologically to produce a seed because only the man was created to do this. So this is a spiritual seed. You have two seeds, and these seeds are in conflict with one another. But who do these spiritual seeds consist of? The question is, who are they? What's their identity? Well, first for Satan's seed, it's his spiritual children, which is another way of saying non-believers, Non-believers. It's those who Jesus describes in John 8, 44. It's those who are under their father, which is the father of lies, who's a murderer, which is Satan. 1 John 3, 10 says there are children of God and there are children of Satan. There's only two. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. And the children of Satan are referred to in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 as sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. It's those who follow the ways of Satan rather than the ways of God. It's those who love their sin and rebel against God. This is non-believers. Now who's the woman's seed? 
Who's that referring to? This is referring to the spiritual children of God. This is believers, followers of God, who hate sin, who love the way of truth, the way of God. It's those who have been spiritually adopted into the family of God. It's what Romans 8 states, Galatians 4, Ephesians 1, 5. God is making it clear to Satan that there's going to be a conflict between my children and yours, meaning you haven't achieved what you thought, the loyalty and allegiance of all, including the very woman you deceived. For there will be a separation, a division between believers and non-believers. There will be a conflict that's going to take place. And really, the, the first evidence that we see of this conflict is in Genesis 4 with Cain and with Abel. Cain really represents the children of Satan, non-believers, where Abel is a true follower of God, representing the children of God. Well, what happens? Well, we see the conflict. We see the hostility. We, we see the clash that takes place by the very fact that Cain rises up and he kills his brother Abel. And 1 John 3, 12 really answers this question as to the motive why. Why he did this. It says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was of the evil one. Abel was of the righteous one. It's highlighting a conflict, that there will be a conflict between the children of God and the children of Satan. And this is a conflict that will continue to the very end of the age. Now, this is showing to Satan, not all is going to follow you. Again, you haven't gained the allegiance of all. This is not going the way you think, even though, yes, the man and the woman did fall. But this gets even better. Because there's another meaning to this judgment declaration. And this is so good. I should charge you guys double. This is so good for this. There's another meaning. And not just a, a plural one, but rather a singular one. You have a precious promise here. Uh, really a glorious promise. Because look at the final two lines in verse 15. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, it first looks like the warfare is only between two offsprings. Two. In terms of, in a corporate sense. But in these last two statements, something really fascinating is said. It says, he shall bruise you on the head. Who is the he? Well, this is the woman's offspring, which is singular. It's not plural here. It's singular, meaning it's referring to a primary one. Really, a primary seed to come from the corporate seed. A primary seed of the woman. And whose head is bruised? Well, this is the serpent. This is Satan himself, not his offspring. So what's this all alluding to? 
Well, first we need to answer another question, and who is this specific seed of the woman? The primary seed of the woman. Again, this is the only place in Scripture that talks about a woman having a seed because that's not normal. Men are the ones who have a seed. So how does this woman have a seed? When we talked about the plurality of it, we talked about there is a spiritual meaning with regards to the, the, the plurality of the seed. But with the, the singularity of the seed, the primary one, there seems to be both a spiritual and a physical aspect. A spiritual and a physical meaning to this. Because as we look at later revelation, that seems to be the case. You say, well, how could this be? Well, I'm so glad you asked. It's because this man, to be born to this woman, will be without an earthly father. Progressive revelation tells us just that. That this one to come will be virgin born. There's only one who fulfills that promise. There's only one who that could be pointing to. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 17, Isaiah 7, I mean, verse 14 makes that clear. Christ was born of a woman, born of a virgin. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the one who fulfills that prophecy. Christ is the primary seed. He is the one who will bruise Satan on the head and whom Satan will bruise on the heel. The bruise on the heel refers to a smaller one, a smaller wound, though still one of suffering, but the bruise on the head points to a fatal blow, a permanent knockout because the head is crushed. Now, when does this happen? It happens at the cross of Christ. For on the cross, our Lord heel will be bruised. That's referring to suffering. That's referring to pain. But also on the cross, he will crush the serpent's head. That's the fatal blow. The cross of Christ is the guarantee of Satan's ultimate destruction. The cross is the defeat of Satan and even more. Scripture makes this so clear. Hebrews 2.14 says, Christ became a human through death that he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And Colossians 2, 14 through 15 says, he disarmed principalities and power. He put them to public shame at the cross. This is a promise, a declaration of God's victory. We need to remember something. We need to remember the context of this divine promise. Because remember, this is stated inside of a divine curse. What we have here really is a marvelous gospel prophecy. Known as the Proto-Evangelium. Say that with me, Proto-Evangelium. It's just a fun, some of you are like not even trying, okay? Proto-Evangelium, which means first gospel. First gospel. This is the first gospel promise in scripture that takes place after sin and rebellion have occurred. 
A promise that comes rather quickly after sin has occurred. It doesn't come weeks later. It doesn't come months later, years later. It comes rather quickly after the man and woman have fallen. It's as if God is so excited to declare it. As if God is, is, is just passionate to proclaim it. This happens in the middle of a judgment. In the middle of a curse, you have a promise of, grape, of grace, not grape, <laughs> of grace, hope, and mercy, and victory. God is making it clear to Satan, you have not won, but rather you have lost. What you thought would be your victory would in reality be your doom. For I have a glorious plan to fulfill that will usher usher in the Messiah who will come and conquer you. Romans 16.20, the Apostle Paul picks up on this analogy by saying the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What we need to understand that this Messiah to come This is not an accident. This is not plan B. This is plan A. This is the will of God. 1 Peter 1.20 says that he was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world. This is the eternal plan of God. This is not an accidental gospel. This is not a reactive gospel. This is a sovereign gospel gospel given by a sovereign God. How mighty our God is. How great he is for he is the ultimate one. Imagine how comforting, how wonderful this news would have been to Adam and Eve who sinned, followed Satan, but yet they hear the news Satan's going to be defeated by God. He's going to be overthrown. God states this before the judgment on the man and the woman, showing really his grace, his character. This creator is showing them, I'm not the only one, not only am I the one who created you, I'm also your savior. I'm also the one who's going to save you. This is a gospel promise given by a sovereign God. Now that's just two verses. We still have a few left to walk through. So we're just going to skim the surface of these really to to highlight the main point. After God has given this glorious gospel promise, we're once again reminded that sin has consequences. And we see those consequences applied to the man and to the woman. And these consequences really both affect the primary operations of the man and the woman. Really, the centrality of their roles is what is affected, what is hindered. First, you have the woman who is up. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children yet your desire will be for your husband 
and he will rule over you. The woman will be afflicted with pain in childbirth. This pain would serve as a reminder of the role of the woman in the fall and how sin will be passed on to her children. But in spite of this pain, it can still be turned into a blessing, not only by the presence of a child, but by the gift of life, by the raising of a godly seed. But there's going to be pain. Pain is attached. I remember asking Amanda, and I always do this, we've had three children. After every child, I go, is it bad? She goes, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I remember during uh, our second child, our son Grayson, when he was born, Amanda was in the process truly of delivering the baby, and everyone's around us, and I said a pretty funny joke. I think I'm a pretty funny guy. And I said a pretty good joke that everyone was cracking up. The nurses were, the midwife, everyone was cracking up. I mean, even my mother-in-law, my mom, everyone was to the point that my hand begins squeezed. Amanda looks at me and goes, we're not joking right now. (laughs) It's not the joking time. For there is pain, yes, associated with childbirth, but again, it can be turned to a blessing. By having the child, Jesus tells us this in John 16, and by the raising of a godly seed. In addition to childbirth having pain, the marriage relationship will also have pain. The marriage union will have conflict. For the woman's desire, it says, will be very much like the desire of sin to master Cain. For God says in Genesis 4, 7, 2, Cain, sin's desire is for you. That same term is used for the woman having desire for her husband, showing that the woman would now desire to control, to rule her husband. But it says he will rule over you. That's what God says. But this rule is not one of grace. It's not one of compassion, but rather points to an abuse of his rule, an abuse really of his power. Rather leading with care, compassion, and consideration, he now will lead with domination. He will lead in a tyrannical way. Or if he doesn't lead, if he surrenders his role to the wife, he'll just become passive, withdrawn, and distant. Because of sin, the roles of the husband and the wife will be distorted. There will be disharmony now. But the challenge of this relationship can also be turned to a blessing as well. Because when a man and a woman follow really the outline of their roles that God has prescribed for them, of what we see in Ephesians 5, of what we see in Colossians 3, when a husband actually seeks to lead and takes his cues from Christ, and a woman joyfully honors and submits to the leadership of her husband. It can be turned to a blessing. And in turn, when it is that way, it becomes a picture of the gospel of what we talked about a few weeks ago. By the fact that blessing is still present in marriage, that it can be, blessing and grace can still be there with regards to childbirth. It's showing grace is still pleasant, present even in the midst of these consequences. Now in our last verses, God turns to the man to highlight how sin affects his main sphere of operation. We're told that God's punishment of the man really involves his relationship to the very ground that had been a source of joy when Adam cared for the garden. 
but now it would be a source really of ongoing pain because Adam failed to lead. And he ate from the tree that was prohibited. Now he's going to struggle to eat in the future. Everything will be difficult now. Human life will be difficult because the ground is cursed. Now it's the ground that is cursed, not work that is cursed. Some of you believe that. That work itself is a result of the fall. That is not true. For Genesis 2.15, we were placed in the garden. Adam was placed in the garden to tend, to keep it. Work itself is a good thing. But rather, it's the ground that is cursed. Specifically, the ground is cursed. It's the earth that is cursed. And because it's cursed now, it's going to produce weeds and thorns, viruses, illnesses, disasters, decay, sorrow, calamity, strife, earthquakes, famines, fires, floods, for it is now subject to sin. And this condition remains. God tells Adam, it is all the days of your life. This pain, this struggle, this difficulty, this sweat as I am sweating now. And this will happen till you return to the ground. Meaning you will physically die. Where you came from, the ground, is where you will return. The last consequence of sin mentioned is death, which always stings. Sin really only corrupts. It only brings heartache and sorrow. It never brings pain. It never brings joy. It never brings peace. It always brings disaster and corruption. Sin always has consequences, and we all know that. Each and every single one of us here know that. That sin has consequences. We know the verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46, for there is no one who does not sin. We understand that. We understand how sin truly is never to our benefit, but only to our detriment. And that is made so clear here in the curse and in the judgment. But there's good news, isn't there? Because thankfully, sin doesn't have the final say, does it? Because where sin abounded, what abounded more? Grace abounded more. Romans 5 tells us. And the full manifestation and display of grace is found in the primary seed of the woman who is Christ Jesus. He's the one who reverses the curse, He is the one who defeats Satan. He is the one who purchases salvation. He is the one who restores all things. In fact, it tells us in Colossians 1.20 that all things are reconciled through the blood of his cross. And there's one final verse I, I want us to look at. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think this is a fitting place to end 
Because as Adam is told, for dust you are, to dust you shall return, for you came from the ground, you're going to go back to the ground. This is not the end result of the man. For 1 Corinthians 15 is, the, is a glorious section. It's a glorious chapter on the future of our resurrection. Look what it says in verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality, then, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though you will die, that is a result of the fall. You who are in Christ will be raised to eternal glory because again, the primary seed who is the redeemer, who is the gospel, God himself is the gospel. He is the victorious one. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this first gospel promise, this prophecy in the middle of divine judgment. Lord, we have hope. Lord, we have hope. We thank you, Lord, that you are our savior. Help us, Lord. Help us to see you and to live in light of what you've done. God, help us to live with eternity on the forefront of our minds. Help us to not fall in love with the world or the things of time. But Lord, help us to live for Christ. We pray that you were pleased this morning through our study. We pray that you were accurately proclaimed, faithfully represented, Lord. Thank you for this church. We thank you, Lord, that we can even be outside and that we can meet. Lord, what a privilege it is for us to meet as a church. We're grateful for it. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.